0: We'll be in Revelation chapter 2 tonight, verses 12 through 17. Hopefully you have a Bible. Um, If not, you can use your phone, download the Bible app. But Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, we decided to go through, in the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. These are seven real churches but these seven churches are also a type that we can apply to our church today and ask ourselves the question, does my church kind of fit this mold? Do I kind of fit in this category? And so we went over first the loveless church in the beginning of chapter two, and we talked about this church did a lot of stuff, a lot of activity, but they left their first love. Then we talked about the suffering church. There was a church that was, being persecuted, and we were talking about what that looked like a couple of weeks ago. Then this past week, we had a time where we were looking at the interview between myself and Pastor Ray Dash of the Rock Christian Fellowship in Newark. If you didn't check out that interview, it's on our, on our uh, Instagram. Click the link in the bio, and you'll see a YouTube link. Very, very, very important discussion, and I think you may, you may benefit from it. But tonight, we're going over the compromising church the compromising church. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll pray and see what happens. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Right? That's, that, that can just stop you right there. Like, what does that mean? And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have, those, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear what your Spirit is speaking to our church this evening. And we're living in very challenging, stressful, exhausting times. I sat at the doctor today and he asked me, am I dealing with a lot of stress? And I didn't know how to answer his question. But Lord, we know that through you, we can do, we can, um, we, we become more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that you give us strength for today, hope for tomorrow, and a word for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Unity is a powerful force. I think if there's anything we can talk about in this moment, we are seeing a lot of people starting to band together for one movement or another. And unity has historically always been a powerful force. Whether it's people, doing things for good or people doing things for evil. Even way back when, in the book of Genesis chapter 11, you have the, the people building themselves a city and a tower whose top is the heavens. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's all band together and let's all build this tower that's going to reach the heavens. And the Lord saw this city and this tower. Remember this, the Tower of Babel. Here's what God said. Indeed, the people are one. And they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. And and God says, now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. That doesn't necessarily sound negative, does it? But it could be negative if you have unity for the wrong reasons with the wrong people. And many people have seen this in history, right? We've seen the Nazis in Germany who have all unified even people that may not look like murderers started being okay with what was happening to the Jewish people in the Holocaust. And not only that, we're seeing evidences of oppression in our own nation. We're seeing injustice. And now we start seeing these, these unifying forces come together and now we're looking at them, asking asking ourselves the question, can we trust these forces? Can we trust These groups, they're all unifying together. And we want to be on the right side of history, right? So we're looking at what everybody's doing. It seems like on paper, they have good motives. They have good causes. But now we have division in our nation because you have people on the political left, people on the political right, and they all might be coming from good intentions, One is saying that this issue is the most important issue and this is what we're going to fight for. Another one says, no, this one's the important issue and we're going to fight for this one. And both sides at times could seem like they're unifying for the right reasons. But the question is, are you on God's side? Are you unified on God's side? And here was the problem. This church here at the city of Pergamos was unified, but they are not unified With the Lord and his plans. Sometimes we get in this dichotomy of looking at here are the two options. You can be on the left or on the right, but not thinking like, remember, there's the angel that appeared to Joshua, and Joshua said, Are you for us or against us? And the angel says, No, no, I am not. Like he doesn't succumb to the binary decision that he was given in that moment. The fact that he was given two options when really, To be of God's kingdom means that we don't submit ourselves to any kingdom of man because we're going to honor God first and foremost. And he may have options that no human ruler is thinking of in this very moment. So this church right here, Jesus said, verse 12, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. You see, that sword is a sword of division. And he was bringing it to this church who had so become assimilated with the culture that he needed to pick out the people that were on the side of God's kingdom. And he says this, verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, that phrase right there can trip some people up because what in the world does that mean? Most likely what this meant is that this was a cultural epicenter of wickedness this was known in this city of pergamos to be the one of the first cities of asia to involve themselves in worship of the emperor so some people worship some statues this mythological god but then they start looking at a human figure and saying, no this one this human being our ruler the emperor he is god so they're committing idolatry and as they were making such advancements, negative advancements in their culture towards wickedness and idolatry, God was saying that this is actually where Satan's throne is. Satan has decided to camp out in this place because he sees it as a strategic center of influence, but influence for evil. So ask yourself the question, do we live near a cultural epicenter of wickedness? Is it possible that we live Very close, or our home could be maybe one of the most powerful places on earth. I think so. I think New York City is one of the most powerful, most influential places on earth. Doesn't mean that everybody there is wicked, or I'm not saying that, but the question is, is that power, is that influence for good, or is it for evil? Can it be leveraged? Can Satan himself camp out there and say, if I'm going to negatively influence the world, let me take over one of the most influential cities. And let me impact some of the neighboring towns, cities, communities. Do we have the chance to be assimilated into the culture or choose to be ambassadors of the Most High God? That is the question. The question before us is, are we going to be absorbed into wickedness or are we going to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ? Now, an ambassador, remember, doesn't forget who they represent. Though they live in a different country, if we have an ambassador to different countries representing us, they know that they represent the United States of America, regardless of the location in which they live. How foolish it would be if an ambassador of the U.S. is in a different country, and then they forget why they're there, and they just abandon the whole reason and the whole mission they had been there in the first place. Well, for us, we are ambassadors of a different world, a different kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, and we represent Jesus in everything that we do. So this is the difference between Lot and Daniel. Remember, Lot lived in a wicked city called Sodom and Gomorrah. It was so wicked that while Lot, a Christ follower, well, he didn't know he was a Christ follower at the time, but bear with me, a person who is worshiping the most high God was Living in this wicked city was supposed to represent the most high God, but instead he got assimilated into the culture. And remember the story when there are two angels who went to go visit, and they appeared to be just normal men. They went to go visit Lot and see what he was doing there in the city, kind of checking in on him. And Lot was so embarrassed that these two angels were visiting. That he was trying to hide them because there were people in the community that saw there are two neighboring people coming in and they wanted to rape these two angels, not knowing that they were angels. I mean, that's how wicked the city was. And then to make matters worse, Lot, embarrassed at what was happening, protecting his two visiting men, decides to offer up his own daughters to be raped by the people around him. So when I say it's a wicked city, that's the kind of city I'm talking about, okay? I don't think we're there yet, but you can see that this is the type of thing that was happening. Lot was supposed to be representing God and instead... He was defending the wickedness around him and was even willing to be uh, complacent with it, complicit with it. He was willing to get involved with the wickedness around him. So, was he being compromising? I think so. But what about Daniel? Remember, Daniel was a prisoner captured, a Jewish prisoner in the Babylonian camp. And as he was there, they made a decree that no one could worship God. Um, No one could worship any other person other than King Darius. That was the only one that they could worship. And another time you had King Nebuchadnezzar who made a golden statue and Sazerac, Meshach, and Abednego. They're all supposed to bow down to this statue. So that was the times in which Daniel lived and he decided not to compromise his values. And so the question is, are we going to be someone like Lot or someone like Daniel? Daniel, he didn't defile himself. He didn't take up the king's delicacies. He was offered the best of what Babylon had to offer. He said, no, that's not really my deal. That's not what I do. Because he knew his mission. I think if there's ever a good example of what to do when we're living in a wicked community, it's to look at what Daniel did and how he represented God and was able to have influence in the city, though the city was against the ways of God. So how would we know if you and I have actually been absorbed by the mentality of the world? How would you know? Maybe you have, maybe I have. Maybe this whole time we think that we're actually serving the Lord and we've made a mistake and we've become compromising and complacent. Well, the answer is, of course, this book, the word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Remember beginning of this verse, verse 12, Jesus came with a two-edged sword. The word of God reveals to us whether or not our motives, our thoughts, our wisdom, our plans, whether or not we've gone off course from God's plan, his wisdom, his thoughts. That's why we always have to take our thinking as Christians, as believers and check it with the word of God. Now, once again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, pure logic. We say that we believe in God, that God is good. We start there. Then God has given us a book. This book is perfect, okay? We don't rationalize backwards. We don't look and be like, well, I don't really understand how God created the whole world. I don't really understand how, like, God could resurrect a person from the dead. That could trip you up if you don't believe in God. But if you believe that God exists and that this entire universe came into existence out of nothing, that is the most miraculous thing ever. Everything else is a little bit easier to understand. So God gave us this book. This book is perfect, and he tells us what to do because he himself is perfect. And so it would make sense that we would fact check ourselves, not with the news, not with the media, but first and foremost with God's word to see if we've gone off course. The popular illustration is, how do you tell if a dollar bill is counterfeit? You don't have to know everything about counterfeit bills. All you have to do is hold it up to a real dollar bill to be able to tell what's wrong and what's right. And and same thing with us. You don't have to know everything there is to know about heresies, false doctrine, whatever. All you need to know is the word of God. Be an expert on Jesus. Be an expert on the word and everything else will start to unravel. Romans chapter 12, verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect Will of God. We need our minds renewed and shaped by God's word. So I'm going to say things tonight, as I think sometimes I do, that's going to make you kind of ticked off at me. But you just have to ask yourself the question is it me saying it? Or is your problem with the word of God? Because if your problem's with the word of God, I can't help you. He himself said it. If it's my thoughts, I mean, like, I. I don't want you to just hear my thoughts. I try as much as possible to take my thoughts out of it, but I'm going to say things that I'm going to have supporting verses. And you have to ask yourself the question, have I gone off like me, Alan Khan, or is it possible that we have as a church steered off because we live in a very influential area where Satan's throne is and he wants to throw us off. That, that doesn't mean you're a terrible person. That doesn't mean I'm a terrible person. All of us, when we are scattered, like this is literally the perfect storm for Satan. Scatter the church, make sure everybody's isolated, have everybody terrified because of the coronavirus, have everybody terrified because now racism and, and everybody else is, is, is perpetuating police brutality and all this stuff. You're seeing all this stuff. All at the same time, every, everybody's becoming more divisive and there's no church gathering for us to locally attend so that we can bring it all in and talk about it. He's gotten us more distracted than ever. It would make sense that all of us, myself included, would start to steer off course. But now we can find our home and find our center in his word. So let's let him do it tonight, starting in verse 13. We're going to talk about the compromise. In fact, two kinds of compromise that this church at Pergamos was involved in. Verse 13. So he says, latter part of the verse, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of which, in which Antiochus was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, he's not saying all bad things, right? He's saying these people are willing to hold fast to the name of Jesus, even in the heart of the city of wickedness. That's got to count for something, right? Like definitely get some props. Everybody around you is anti-Jesus. Satan himself lives there. His throne is there. And you're saying, no, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. Even as people are being martyred and killed for being associated with Jesus. So that's something. But there's a but in verse 14. Those of you that are immature and just giggled, I'm judging you. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Two compromises. Number one, sexual immorality. Number two, doctrinal deviation. So sexual immorality and doctrinal deviation. You know, something so strange has happened In our culture. It used to be the case that there was the phrase, and it it was true, actions speak louder than words, and somehow it's flipped. Somehow what everybody cares about right now more than anything else are your words and not your actions. They could care less if you've been behind the scenes helping out people in the community, helping out the poor, living your life amongst them, If you didn't post about it on your Instagram, if you didn't talk about it, you're complicit with everybody else. We're starting to see people judging you by what you say and the words that you choose more than they value your character and your life. Now, I'm not saying that words aren't important. Words are absolutely important. Words can be offensive. They can hurt a lot of people. At the same time, all of us have grandparents. Right? That say things and you're just like, oh, grandpa, like he just doesn't understand. Like that's really offensive. But like that doesn't mean that your grandfather or grandmother wants to be offensive or hates people or anything like that. It's just that they're ignorant. And we're helping people not be ignorant. And that's fine. But I'm noticing that, and maybe you notice it too, there's a constant pressure to say specific things. But if you're pressured to say specific things and it's not God's pressure, it's not God saying, I'm calling you to say this or post this or do that. You're not acting out of the fear of God. You're acting out of the fear of man. You're so worried of how people look at you because if you don't say things exactly the way that they want you to say them, they're going to look at you and, and completely dismiss you. So we're living in a very difficult time, but you and I know what we have to do. We have to aim to please God first and foremost. Why? Because the Bible says so. Proverbs 29, 25 The fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. If you fear what people are going to do and what they're going to say all the time, your life is going to be a wreck. How do I know that? To be a people pleaser, just think about that. Constantly adjusting your life based on what people think and what people say. Right now, it's popular opinion, but what happens when? there's any negative feedback about any way that you live your life, the way that you dress, the way that you look, the things that you say, and then you're constantly navigating, not out of conviction of who you are and who God's called you to be, but you're navigating out of conviction of like, I don't want to offend people. I don't want people to not like me. I don't want people to hate me or think poorly of me. But when you trust in the Lord, you, you shall be safe. He will be the one. Isn't it true that Jesus said, when you're doing a good work to do it in the secret place and your father who sees it in secret will reward you openly? Like, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. What happened to that? What happened to us doing things before God and not before man? Not caring whether or not we posted about it or said things about it. We're just making the change that God's calling us to make. And the reason why I'm bringing this up now is there may come a time that you and I are finding that dividing point. Right now, maybe it's not as clear. You're going to find the dividing point where the world right now is making this popular opinion where it's like, speak out against racism. And obviously we want to speak out against that. So that's fine. Christians can do that. Will there come a time that there's a bandwagon effect? The whole country is going one way and we are now in a compromise where we as Christians have to go another way. Completely separate issue. I'm not talking about racism here. I'm talking about, is there in the future a time when that's going to happen. Because if the only reason you're speaking out about racism is you're afraid of people thinking you're racist, what's going to happen when they're afraid of you? Uh, What's going to happen when you're afraid of people calling you a Christian? And that has a completely negative, uh, you know, meaning to it. We have to ask ourselves the question, am I honoring God or honoring man? Because the time will come when we have to stand against the grain. I'm not saying it's now. The time is going to come, and we have to be prepared to honor God first. That's what Daniel did. Daniel didn't start a revolution. He didn't say, what, there's a decree that I can't even pray to anyone besides God? Let me go find some people to sign a petition. I'm going to go revolt, and we're going to, like, overthrow Babylon. He didn't do that. He says, okay, that's fine. I'm still going to pray because I've always been doing that. He didn't change a single thing about what he did. But the key is he did what he did because he had a close relationship with the Lord. He didn't suddenly like amp up his spiritual life and say, oh, wow, now I'm going to pray three times a day instead of once a day. It just was his custom. He didn't change because whether or not government makes a rule this way or that way, that doesn't change who Daniel was and it shouldn't change who we are. If Christianity becomes illegal one day, that shouldn't change how we act or how we respond. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There are a lot of promises in the Bible. This is not one that people like to quote, but yes, it's a promise. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Just make sure it's persecution for God and not for your political party. Because some people do that all the time, right? It's like, oh, I need to stand up for my rights as an American. It's like, well, but how does that have to do with Jesus or his commandments or anything of the sort? Verse 13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So here it's saying you need to continue in this book. Forget about everything else. Honor God, honor his book, read his word. Let it be embedded in your heart. Like the psalmist says, Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what good is it to hold fast to the name of Jesus in a stronghold of evil and at the same time to live just like everybody else? To be perpetuating evil in that city because you've conformed to it. I think this is where we're going to get to the first compromise because we see the next verse about the doctrine of Balaam. This is the doctrine of Balaam. Satan, if he can't stop you from being the church, he's going to render you ineffective in your work. If he can't stop you from gathering, showing up, saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, having it on your bio on Instagram, he's just going to make everything you do useless It was Jesus who said, you know, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Satan says, well, if the church is always going to prevail, I'm just going to make the church less the church. And everything the church will do suddenly is not churchy things. has nothing to do with Jesus. has to do with hedonism, pleasure, American values, rights, freedoms, equality. Just get them sidetracked. On issues that are important, but not of the utmost importance. So, it was a, a pastor, Skip Heitzick, who put it this way. A good thing can be a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. There's a lot of good issues out there, but are we prioritizing the wrong issue? And by doing that, we are idolizing these issues. So, let's go through the compromises. The first one is sexual immorality. So verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Those of you that do not know this story, there was a pagan prophet named Balaam and this pagan king named Balak. Similar names, very different people. Balaam was this guy who was going to I mean, he just did a whole bunch of different things as like a sorcerer or prophet or whatever. And Balak said, I'm going to pay this guy, Balaam, to curse the people of Israel because they're my enemy. So he went up to Balaam and says, all right, I'm going to pay you money. And you need to look at Israel and just curse them with your like voodoo stuff. And he goes, all right, I'm going to do it. And he went up there and every time he tried to curse them, instead blessings came out of his mouth. It's kind of a funny story. So Balak's like, what's wrong with you? I just paid you to curse them. You opened up your mouth and you start blessing the people of Israel. He's like, oh, yeah. I don't know why that happened. I just, whatever God tells me to do, I just got to say that. I don't really have a choice, but I'll try again. So he, he goes to a different part and then he tries again. Same thing. He starts blessing instead of cursing. He's like, what are you doing? Stop that. He does this three times and Balaam's just going nuts. And Balaam's like, oh man, what am I gonna, this is not helpful because I'm trying to help my friend out. And every time I open my mouth, instead of cursing this people, I start blessing this people. And so what Balaam decides to do is if I can't directly curse the people of Israel, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the enemies of my friend Balak to stumble by just tempting them, throwing in a little temptation here and there, having certain people go in and intermingling and committing sexual immorality. And by them stumbling and falling into temptation, they're just not going to be the people of Israel at all. And that's exactly what we're talking about tonight. That was the kind of compromise where, so God's speaking to this church of Revelation saying, or Pergamos saying, you're holding the same doctrine of Balaam, which is, it's not the fact that you're outright looking at how to commit wickedness. It's not the fact that you're denying my name. It's just that you're not representing me at all besides the fact that you said my name. You're just saying the name of Jesus. Yes, I'm a Christian, but there's nothing more attached to it. And because of that, they're falling into sexual immorality. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says this about sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. This is not just an ancillary issue. This is one of the most important issues of all scripture because sex itself was designed as a means for man and woman, for a husband and wife, to be able to have that unity that God himself wants to represent uh, the relationship between God and the church. This is such a sacred and special union and Satan wants to completely obliterate it and just make it like it's, it's not really a thing. It's just a normal thing that happens. It's just like anything else. People eat, they drink, they have sex, they reproduce. It's just a natural process of life. But we've lost the sacredness of it. And because of that, there's no limitations to how we can use ourselves uh, sexually. And because of that, you're seeing all kinds of sexual immorality in this time, especially now that we've gone through coronavirus. I looked up a statistic, and one of the most popular and largest pornography sites increased its traffic during the pandemic between February and March by 11%. And then between March and April, the traffic increased 22%. So we're seeing about a 33% increase in all traffic on this one pornography site all within a matter of a couple months because people have been locked indoors. Maybe it's not pornography as your struggle, but we also have in uh, Proverbs, we're warned about people coming in, being promiscuous, and leading you down the road of sexual temptation. Proverbs chapter seven, we read, now, and in verse 24, now therefore listen to me, my children, pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let her heart turn aside to her ways, do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. We see so many people, leaders, respected leaders, being called out by how they mistreated people sexually, by committing acts of adultery, not being faithful to their wife or husband. We're seeing Christian, respected pastors and ministers falling to sexual temptation. We're seeing this all the time. And it's a slippery slope, and it all starts with a well. Why not? Don't you deserve it? Haven't you worked hard? Don't you feel lonely? I mean, when has God ever come through for you? And this is where we gotta be very careful because sometimes the appeal to flee sexual immorality is purely pragmatic. What I mean by that is, don't do it. It's gonna ruin your view of sex. It's gonna set you up for failure in marriage it's going to hurt you. It's going to damage you. You're, going to, you're like a flower. And you're just ripping off your petals and just like weird illustrations that people come up with. Or they'll say things like, God wants you to be the most fulfilled in marriage. So hold out. Just wait. Just wait for the right person. And all these appeals have one thing in common. They're all legalistic. They're all about you and you being the most fulfilled and you being the most happy and all it takes is for you to obey God's laws. And By doing that, you're going to be able to attain what you really want. But for me, you don't have to convince me why I shouldn't have to, you don't have to come up to me and say like, hey, Alan, here are the reasons why you should not betray your wife. Here are the reasons why you should not like betray your best friend. It's going to like, I mean, think about your kids, think about how hurt she's going to be, think about your church. I mean, everyone's going to look at you and be like, wow, you're a failure and, You don't have to do that to me because I have no desire to betray my family. I have no desire to betray my wife. But all of us need to keep up that guard in our hearts, right? All of us have to tell ourselves the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is not that if you follow Jesus, you'll be the most sexually fulfilled. Follow Jesus and you won't be single anymore. You won't be lonely anymore. The gospel is, you know what? Some people die single. But Jesus himself stepped into this world to make every broken thing fixed. The truth of the matter is, you may have life-debilitating disease in this this life. You may get an STI. You may get um, some ramifications. Like you may not be able to have a child. There may be things like that that happen. But listen, this life is not all that there is because when you follow Jesus, you get Jesus. You're guaranteed life eternal and unshakable certainty that no matter what you go through in this life, no matter what trial that comes, loss, abandonment, hurt, pain, betrayal, no matter what those things are, there, there's God's Holy Spirit that is with you through every stage. He gives you peace that surpasses all understanding. I mean, what's your alternative? A lot of people, what they really need is they they need people to never betray them ever. They need to never be lonely. Like the fact and the thought of ever being without a person, without a boyfriend or a girlfriend, is like a devastating thought to them. So they constantly need to move from relationship to relationship. There are people that are looking for something else to fill that hole And I can guarantee you, if it's not God, it's not eternal. And so it will always leave you more empty. But with Jesus, the best is always yet to come. So don't give in in this time. Don't give in to the lies of Satan. Recognize it's a strategy of his to distract you, to remove you from what's most important in life. And maybe this is the time, and we'll have a time of worship after, after this is done, that you can get your heart right with the Lord and you've been looking at stuff on the internet you know you're not supposed to, you've been visiting sites, this is the place you can look for that accountability. Because we want to maximize this time that we have on this earth to serve our Lord and be able to make a difference, a true difference in this world. So, do you just claim the name of Jesus? Claim the name of being a Christian? Or do you love him? And if you don't love him, is it perhaps the fact that you've never really understood what it means to be loved by him? Have you not known what it's like to experience the fullness of Christ's love that surpasses understanding? Because we love him because he first loved us. And if you look at that scene where Jesus is dying on the cross and you, you look at his sacrifice for you, your heart melts, you're moved, and you understand, if God gave up all this for me, what is a little thing uh, what what are the things that he's asking me to give up for him? So that's the first compromise, sexual immorality. The second compromise this church made was doctrinal deviation. So we see verse 15. It says, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, once again, we don't really know what the Nicolaitans believed and what their doctrine was. Probably a form of Gnosticism, which is basically... Um, the body is evil, the spirit is good, something like that. But either way, the point is, there are doctrinal deviations and the doctrines that are not of God are going to be deviations. We're going to be removed from what God is asking us to do. So we have to be sure that we're in the word, able to discern the lies in society. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Okay, so if you've been losing track of what we've been saying thus far, You don't want to miss this. We as Christians, we need to check our beliefs and our presuppositions at the door of scripture. All of us, we have gut reactions, right? That's wrong. That's messed up. I need to do something about this. A lot of that could be righteous anger. It might be a righteous reaction. But the Bible says, even if it is, be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There is a lot of wrath that is happening right now in our world, and it should not be so with Christians, with believers. You and I are not to exercise wrath. When you're exercising wrath, it's not producing righteousness in anyone. It's not saving any souls. We need to instead have the reaction, process it in front of scripture. Lord, Is this me or is this you? Are you prompting? Are you stirring me? Are you directing me towards something? Because what happens is the world is just picking up on those emotional cues. And I think Satan himself is picking up on those emotional cues. And it's easy to be turned into different forms of ethical theory that are not biblical forms of ethical theory. Now, this is a little bit complicated, but I can explain. This probably needs its own message, but I don't want to bore you. So I'll just give a summation. We're not utilitarian in our ethical theory. We're not consequentialists in our ethical theory, which means utilitarians believe things like, you need to do what will uh, provide the best possible outcomes for the most amount of people. Whatever contributes to the most human flourishing in the world, that's what you need to do. The big problem is, how do you and I know what that is? How do you know what our actions will lead to the most amount of human flourishing? That could be based on your subjective notions or you can look at scripture and ask yourself, well, what is God commanding me to do? Consequentialism, the same thing. It's, if you don't act in this way, then this inaction will lead to this happening and this happening and this happening and this happening. And you wouldn't want to do that because then all this terrible stuff is going to happen in the world. So a perfect example is something like this. You wouldn't want to tell the truth to your friend, because if you told the truth, it would really hurt them. So you're thinking about the consequences. Not the fact that God in his word says not to lie. The father of all lies is Satan. You're thinking about like, oh, well, you know what? It's probably for the best that I don't do this because of what's gonna result. So that's consequentialism. And we're not consequentialists. But it's so difficult to determine that when everybody's thinking about things like silence is violence. Now I'm not totally against that phrase, But here's the thing, all those things need to be brought through scripture and ask yourselves the question, am I only taking action because I'm told to, because if I don't, then I'm somehow morally responsible for my inaction. There's a difference, I, I believe, a clear difference between you're seeing someone dying on the side of the road and you're going to help them, right? And then you're hearing about these different policies that may result down the road if you vote a certain way, like this is what people do with politicians. You need to vote for this person, because if you don't, then this person's gonna win. And if that person wins, here's what's gonna happen. This, this is what's gonna happen. This is what's gonna happen. And you're gonna be responsible because you voted for the other person. And I'm like, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's not an easy issue. And all of us have our own convictions. And you should be free to have your convictions and vote the way that you wanna vote before God and not have me breathing down your neck and saying, how dare you disobey God when God has clearly said you need to vote Republican or Democrat. Here it is. You know, like it doesn't say that. So instead, we need to ask ourselves the question, have I just given in to what people are telling me to do and their pressures? Or am I truly doing what God's asking me to do? Now, I'm saying this and it could get a little mixed up because I'm kind of going around in circles a little bit. I'm like not getting to the hard issue on purpose because it's It's such a difficult thing. But um, here's what I'll say. Just let me rant for one second. A lot of people are throwing my way different resources on things like defund the police, which by the way means like three different things. And when you see something like that, I know people are posting it right away, but I'm looking at that and I'm like, you read that for five minutes and you're sold on that theory, whatever that theory is. And I'm just saying it's a lot more complicated than that. So let's just take time. Let's read the information. Let's read the resources. Look at the studies. Look at the data. And then we can make an informed decision. But it doesn't have to be a moral decision, number one. Number two, like society's corrupt. Government's corrupt. We know that. Just because it may look like here's an improvement over here doesn't mean that as a Christian, you are morally responsible and culpable if you do not act by voting this way or or that way or petition or whatever, things like that. So, if we could take a step back, look at the things, look at the data, and I would caution all of us be very careful about what you post immediately when it comes to political action. Because when you're posting, you're representing Jesus in those posts. If you're formally convinced, you have a conviction, great. But I'm thinking, and maybe it's just me, but this is a feeling of mine a lot of us are just reposting things when we've read it for 10 minutes and not really looking at the sources not really looking at the end results or things like that. So there's a lot of reaction happening. And as Christians, we need to just, once again, get to the book. And, and here's the thing. Here's where I'm really getting at, okay? Here's the thing that we all forget all the time. We actually do have tools that the world does not have to break down strongholds. The world can laugh at it, but it's true. I don't care if they laugh. It's true. Here's the verse. You memorized that one point in your life. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Like systemic oppression, systemic injustice. Those things that are intangible. That's what we can do. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You and I have the ability to do things that the world can never do. So don't dismiss it. Don't just say, oh, yeah, I know. But if I talk about praying, all my secular friends are going to laugh at me like, you got to do more than pray. Okay, do more than pray. But don't forget, like while they're doing other things, you and I have the power to change the world because God himself is listening when we pray to him. Like sometimes I pray and God answers and he does something because I prayed. God uses your prayer to change society, change the world, send more people into the harvest. Don't forget that. Don't dismiss that. Don't get distracted from that. And also, don't forget that Moses tried to lead a revolt against the Egyptians. He saw a man who was persecuted Jew, an Egyptian persecuted Jew. He took mares into his own hands. He killed the Egyptian, and that led him to flee when no one else was getting behind him. He was thinking this is what the Bible tells us in the New Testament. Moses thought, if I just take care of this guy, people look at me as that strong leader. So they're going to follow me and we're going to lead this rebellion against Pharaoh in in Egypt. And instead, it didn't work. And God had to humble him, brought him into the wilderness for 40 years and then sent him to ask Pharaoh for permission to leave. And by that, he was able to bring him out through miracles. Isn't that interesting? Like Moses wasn't called to leave a revolution or revolt. Instead, he was called to obey God asked for permission, and when Pharaoh said no, he said, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. And then 10 times later, it was successful. And it was successful because they used tools that no pagan had access to. It was God's tools. It was God's miracles. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's It's mighty in God. Let's not forget about that. We are ambassadors of him. So in conclusion, let's look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that includes us today. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the, man- the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. couple things there. Hidden manna. A really interesting thought if you ever just want to like geek out or just daydream. If you're just like really bored one day, and you have like an hour Think about the fact that the Ark of the Covenant got lost somehow and nobody knows where it is. Like 587 BC, Jerusalem was taken over and then nobody knows what happened. Just kind of disappeared. God knows where it is. The Ark of the Covenant is somewhere here in this world. It didn't just like evaporate. I think it was pretty sturdy. It's it's somewhere there. He knows where it is. And it'd be interesting, like, Probably not true that the manna is actually still inside the ark because they put it in there. I mean, that, but then again, it's like manna from heaven, so maybe it has like amazing preservatives and lasts like 2,000 years. Either way, it's like a really interesting thought. God knows where it is. And it says here the person who overcomes, he'll give some of that hidden manna to eat. And I think about it like this all the times when we're getting stressed out, we're getting worried, we feel like we're just completely lost at what the solution is for society. God always has hidden manna for us to eat. And it's found written in his word. Every single morning, every single evening, whenever you meet with the Lord, you have the opportunity to take part in that hidden manna. Secondly, we see here's a white stone that you'll be given. And on that stone, a new name written. So there's the significance of the white stone in those days is first of all, White stones were given to victors in battle as they were entering into a banquet, like a victory banquet. It was almost like, here's your your ticket. Here's a white stone. And they would go in. So that's like a cool picture. Like at the end of the age, we're all in there with our white stones. We're like, yeah, we made it to the banquet. But here's another interesting one. The white stone in those days was also given to jurors. They were given a black stone and a white stone. And as they were judging a case, if they believed the person was guilty, they raised the black stone. If they believed the person was innocent, they were given a white stone. So I think about it like this. It's as if God only gives us white stones as we enter into his victory. And as we look at everyone, all our brothers and sisters who have endured everything we've endured in this life, there's only one verdict we get to pronounce over each and every individual, and that's you are innocent. When you come here in fellowship, that's what we're proclaiming. People are coming in dejected. I am a failure. I did mess up. I mess up time and time again. And you get to declare to them, you are innocent because you're covered by God's grace and his blood. And then on that stone is a new name. I love that too because I think about when you're close with people, sometimes you give them a nickname, right? Like there's a name that maybe your parents gave you when you are born your first and your last name. Then you have a best friend, your spouse, gives you a nickname or things that you call each other. Even best friends, they call each other different names. But what name will God give you? I mean, your parents gave you a name, but God will give you and me a new name. And I almost wonder if it's like, we're all trying to figure figure out our identity all of our lives. And then we come to that place Where he's like, but this is who you are and this is who you've always been. Here's been your significance, here's your identity and he gives it to us on that white stone of innocence. You are innocent because of what Jesus has done and here's your new name. Here's how special you are to me. I made you fearfully and wonderfully made, made in my image, but you contribute something unique to the world because you've lived it and you've been faithful unto death. So all that to say, Let's not be a church that compromises. Let's maintain our identity in him. Let's be the church while we're in a city of wickedness. People are losing their minds. But we get to have our mind on straight, our head on straight, because our heads and our minds and our hearts are shaped by this book. And so we're not easily shaken or easily moved. Though the storm rages, though the buildings are being toppled, The land is being leveled. Our God is a sure and steady foundation. Let's pray.